0: We'll start with prayer in just a moment. I love ASI. I love the theme of sharing Christ in the marketplace and no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you do, God calls us to ministry. God calls us to serve him with other people. This particular seminar, Be Faithful, they have three different tracks for ASI. One track is how we serve God, our relationship with God in light of the three angels' messages. Another track is how we relate to other people, our brothers and sisters, in light of the three angels' messages. Then another track is how we relate to government and authorities in light of the three angels' messages. But this particular track is about how we relate to God in light of the three angels' messages. The seminar is Be Faithful. I wanna tell you up front, we're not gonna talk about a list of rules and regulations. We're not gonna talk about a list of do's and don'ts. We're not gonna talk about a list of haves and have nots, or a list of requirements. If you watch 3ABN at all, and you watch Sabbath School Panel, you know that I like lists, and we're gonna separate this session into two sections. The first part is be, Be faithful. We are not called to do faithful. We are called to be faithful. What does that mean? Who is the essence of our character, our calling, our commitment in Christ? And then we are called to be faithful. And how are we to be faithful practically? We're going to look at it and explore it through the life of Joseph and three keys or three principles that I see in the life of Joseph as he chose to be faithful. Key number one, your past does not define your present. Faithfulness is not decided or dependent on our past. Key number two, your present depends on his presence faithfulness is dependent on whose we are or who we belong to. In other words, faithfulness is dependent on our identity in Christ. Key number three, your future depends on your present. Faithfulness is determined by the choices that you and I make today. Our opening scripture is Psalm 12 verse 1. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there or you can jot down the reference. Psalm chapter 12, verse 1. It's a prayer of David, and he says, Help, Lord. He, cries out with a, he starts with a cry for help. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We are grateful that you are our faithful God. And right now, I ask that you would hide me, that your Spirit would speak to us by the power of your Word, and that our lives would be changed by the indwelling Spirit. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It was 1848. A man by the name of John Getty decided to go as a missionary to the South Sea Islands. He lived in Canada with his wife and his two children, and they sailed over 20,000 miles from Canada all the way to the South Sea Islands. Now, the particular island that they went to was a cannibalistic island. And in fact, just a couple months before they got there, There was a British ship that had sailed and 20 of the crew members had been eaten, killed and eaten by the cannibals. This was the island to which Pastor John believed he was called to go and minister. And he decided to be faithful to that call, to answer that call. When he got there, he discovered they had no written language and they were heathen, and yet He began to win them to Christ, and he won his first convert and his second. And soon an entire church was planted, and then two churches, and then five, and then ten. And when he left this island, there were 25 churches that had been planted because of the faithfulness of one man who chose to follow God, one man who chose to leave behind creature comforts, And the things that we would want in life and society, one man who chose to spend his life away from family, away from comfort, to be faithful to the call of God on his life. When he left, there were the 25 churches. He had also translated the Word of God, the entire Bible, into their native language. And in one of the churches, there was a plaque posted there, and it said, When he landed in 1848, there were no Christians. When he left in 1872, there were no heathen. You know, when you look at the Word of God, and then we'll jump into the first part of our message, when you look at the Word of God, I'm always amazed as I see the faithfulness of Bible characters and the unfaithfulness of Bible characters. You know, you don't have to look far to discover the first unfaithfulness with Adam and Eve, right? They disobeyed, and they ate of the forbidden fruit, plunging our entire world into chaos and ruin. You come down a little ways, and we come to Abraham, father of the faithful. And yet, he didn't trust God, did he? And he tried to pass his wife, Sarai, off as his sister. That always bugged me, that story. I always thought, what if I were married to him? And he thought, well, my life's pretty important to me. And so I'll just say she's my sister because I care about my life. Jacob, we come down a few more generations. He failed to wait on God for the birthright, which was naturally his. And he took matters into his own hands, causing him to flee from his mother and father's house and causing his brother to seek his life. I think of David, who lusted and acted on that, and then had Bathsheba's husband killed because of his unfaithfulness to God. I think of David's son, Ammon. He didn't fall too far from his father's tree, did he not? And he raped his half-sister, Tamar. I think of Solomon, another son of David, who allowed his wives, 700 of them, to turn his heart from God and to turn his faithful allegiance from God. But on the flip side, I think of Noah, who built a boat when it had never rained, and he continued to build even though he was ridiculed and he was criticized. I think of Abraham who left his home and he followed God and he didn't even know where he was going, and yet he went out faithfully on the call of God. I think of Joseph we'll look at him a little later, how he resisted temptation and chose to trust God, even when he's falsely accused, even when he spent three years in prison for a crime he did not commit, and yet he was faithful to his God. I think of Moses. He left Egypt and sided with the people of God when it ended his career, and it could have caused his life, and yet he followed God even when it appeared for those 40 years that they were wandering in circles in the desert. I think of Joshua who claimed that God could win the heathen lands for, for them when it looked like everything would be defeated. I think of Elijah who trusted God all alone on the mountaintop when everyone else was bowing down and worshiping Baal. I think of Daniel who served God regardless of any threat any coercion, any temptation that came his way. I think of Paul. He served God in spite of shipwreck, in spite of stoning, in spite of beatings and imprisonment and ridicule and torture and even death. I think of Timothy, who faithfully served God, what? From childhood. Are we faithful? Are you faithful? Am I faithful? Are we consistent in our walk with God? Have you ever told yourself that you're doing okay when you know you're not? Have you ever tried to be in control when you felt like your life was falling apart? Have you ever thought one thing inside while acting something entirely different on the outside? You know, Jesus addressed the scribes and Pharisees. This is in Matthew chapter 15. Addressed the scribes and Pharisees. And it's interesting to me, you notice most of his condemnation, as it were, is addressed to the scribes and Pharisees. You ever notice that when you read the Gospels? He fellowships with sinners. He eats with those who were outcasts of society. He loves the unlovable. He came to seek and save the sinners, those who were lost. And yet some of his strongest words of condemnation were reserved for the scribes and Pharisees, those who inwardly did not have it together. Yet outwardly, they looked like they were good Christians, and they were leaders in the church. But inside, they had never met Jesus. Inside, they did not know him. So in Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9, he talks about this dichotomy. It says, these people, speaking specifically to the scribes and Pharisees, these people draw near me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but what? Their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Matthew 5, 8 says it similarly. This, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount. We know this scripture. Blessed are the, what? Pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you read it in the message translation, now I don't usually study that, but I love it in this context. When we look at the heart being different from what the outside is. In Matthew 5, verse 8, you look at it in the message translation. It says this. You are blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart, put right. Then you see what God does in the outside world. What is he saying? That motive is incredibly important when we serve God. We look at the importance of our attitude. So remember, we're dividing the seminar into two sections. The first section was be rather than do, let's try that again, be rather than, okay, then the second section is how to be faithful, and we'll look at that in those three keys. So if we look at the be, let's look at 1 Corinthians 4, and then we're going to the story of Mary and Martha, but let's look at 1 Corinthians 4 first, verses 1 and 2. Remember, we're not called to do faithful. You and I are called to be faithful. 1 Corinthians 4, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ. Would you consider yourself a servant of Christ? I think everybody who comes to ASI seeks to follow God, wants to represent him, has ministry that's involved in sharing Jesus. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ. That's you and I. And stewards of the mystery of God. Are we called to be stewards? Are we called to share the word of God with others? Absolutely. Moreover, it is required in stewards, what? That a man be found faithful. So how do you be rather than do? Doing the right thing is important, absolutely. But doing it with right motivation is equally important, if not more important. Christians must not only do the right things or do the right work. We are called to do it with the right attitude, with the right spirit. You know, you can be a preacher and preach without ever having met Jesus. Did you know that? Philippians chapter 1. This is Paul's prison epistle written while he's in prison to the brethren Philippians chapter 1 verses 15 through 17. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. Did you know that? Did you know someone could stand up in the pulpit? Someone could speak in church? Someone could be giving Bible studies and yet doing it from the motivation of envy and strife. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and strife, some from goodwill, The former, those are those who preach from envy and strife. They preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, hoping to add affliction to my chains. But the latter, they do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What is Paul saying? There are two groups of people, some who share Jesus out of love, some who preach from a heart that surrendered and wanting to serve, some from the motivation of Jesus. And some preach because it's all about them, because it's about ego, because it's selfish ambition or conceit. And not just preachers, but we can do this no matter how we share Jesus. We can do it from a right motivation or we can do it from a wrong motivation. So let's look at the story in Luke 10. When I think about being rather than doing, I think of Mary and Martha. And if I'm being very honest with you, those of you who know me, you know which category I would generally fall into. So Luke chapter 10, let's look at verses 38 through 42. I title this, When Martha Got Mad at Jesus. Because that's really what the story is about. So let's read that. Luke 10, 38 to 42. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village. And a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into their home. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? therefore tell her to come help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. So when I read this passage, I look at three things. What was Mary doing? What was Martha doing? And how did Jesus respond to the two sisters? So what was Mary doing? anyone tell me? She was, that's right, she was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, if you notice in the Gospels, almost always we find Mary at Jesus' feet. In Luke chapter 7, we find Mary at Jesus' feet, washing his feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. In John chapter 11, when Mary's brother Lazarus died, we see Mary running to Jesus and falling at his feet and saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And here we see Mary again at Jesus' feet. Now, probably she washed his feet. We're not told that in the text, but probably she washed his feet when he came in, and then maybe she never got up. She got so thrilled with listening to his teaching and spending time in his presence. What was Martha doing? Martha was working, was she? Absolutely. But it's interesting, she was not jealous that Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet. She was angry that her sister was not helping her. Martha didn't see wrong in herself. She saw wrong in her sister, and she also saw wrong in Jesus. Martha blamed other people, but she found herself innocent. Jesus praised Mary, but he rebuked Martha. Martha's service was not wrong. Was she doing the right thing? Absolutely. She was serving. She was doing hospitality. That is biblical, but she was serving not with a servant's heart. Her motivation was not right. And we see Jesus and how Jesus responded in the situation. He didn't respond with anger. Martha got mad. He didn't get mad back. He didn't respond sarcastically. He simply dealt with the attitude of the two women. Not so much actions, but what he's looking at is attitude. Do you think attitude is more important than action? Yeah. Do you think how we... this? Is, I'm going to coin this word. It doesn't exist. But... How we be in, not being like B E I N G, I mean be and then ing, is more important than do in. So being, who we are inside, who we are in Jesus, is more important than what we do. Now, before you think that's heretical, if we are right inside. It will automatically translate to what we do. You see, the motive always precedes the action. So how do you be rather than do? That's a hard one for me. First thing I would say is to spend time at the feet of Jesus. You know, Greg and I are incredibly busy in ministry, and I know all of you are because all of you are involved in ministry in some fashion or another. And you know sometimes you can get so busy in ministry that you begin to operate off of rote. You begin to say, well, this is expected. Well, I need to do this. Well, this is how I'm supposed to act. Well, this is what you're supposed to say. Without spending that time at the feet of Jesus, You know, the first song I ever played for church, I was probably eight or nine years old, was Sitting at the Feet of Jesus. And I'll never forget it because we were in church, they were just ready for the children's story. And I always ran up for children's story and listened to the story. And then a short while after that was coming this time for special music. But I had a moment of panic and I thought, I can't even remember how the song goes and I can't remember I tried to close my eyes and see where the keys were and where my hands would go and how I would start to play the song and I couldn't remember it and so all the other little kids ran up to the children's story and I turned around and I ran out to the primary Sabbath school classroom because they had a piano and I ran up to the piano and I thought oh this is how I play of course I remembered it I played it a million times I just had that moment of panic and then I went back in. But those words, sitting at the feet of Jesus, oh, what words I hear him say. Happy place so near, so precious. May it find me there each day, sitting at the feet of Jesus. I would look upon the past, for his love has been so gracious. It has won my heart at last. You know, when you read the Gospels, you discover many times people are sitting at the feet of Jesus. Have you noticed that? The demoniac. Remember, Jesus crossed the lake and the demoniac met Jesus. The disciples were terrified and they went running away, but Jesus didn't run. And when the demons were cast out and the disciples came back, what does the Word of God say? They found him sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed, and in his right mind. The Samaritan leper, he fell at the feet of Jesus after he was healed in gratitude to God for saving him. Jairus, ruler of the synagogue, fell at the feet of Jesus, begging for Jesus to heal his little daughter. Jesus, as a child of 12 in the temple, sat in the midst of the teachers of the law, listening to them, and asking questions. You know what I find? At the feet of Jesus, you and I can find healing. At the feet of Jesus, you and I can find deliverance. At the feet of Jesus, you and I can express our gratitude. At the feet of Jesus, we ask questions and listen for his answers. Do you need healing? Do you want deliverance? Do you need a new life? A new heart, a new start? Do you have questions that only He can answer? Spend time at the feet of Jesus. The second way that we can be rather than do is to pray. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. I love this scripture. It starts out with be, what's that word? Anxious for nothing, but at everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. So at the feet of Jesus, we discover him. We find healing. We find deliverance. We spend time in prayer. Because when we are anxious, usually we're doing instead of being. Is that right? When we lack peace in our heart, usually we are doing instead of being. So when we need that peace, when we want to be delivered from that anxiousness, when we need a new touch from Jesus, and we want to be, we want to serve him from our heart and have that motivation with him inside instead of doing things externally because that's what we're supposed to do, we need to spend time in prayer. Number three, behold Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory. And, you know, beholding Jesus is not one and done. It's not like, hey, I beheld him ten years ago. I'm good. I beheld him yesterday. I'm good. I beheld him this morning. I'm good for the rest of the day. It does not work that way. You know, my husband Greg is a good driver. I'm not saying that to boast on him, I'm just saying I feel very safe when he drives. He doesn't start and stop and go all around the road, he's very steady. If you were to drive in Illinois, I don't know, how many of you have ever been to Illinois? Several of you. If you're not in the southern part, if you're the rest of the state, Illinois is very flat. Did you notice that? Uh, We grow corn one year, and the next year we grow soybeans, and the third year we go back to corn. It's very consistent, it's very flat, and there's a certain sameness to that dotted white line zipping past and everything. It's just the roads, you almost can drive yourself. And Greg was driving one time, and there was a pothole in the road, and he turned the wheel and he avoided the pothole and kept going, and then he thought, I wonder how the driver behind me fared, and if he missed the pothole as well. So he looked in the rear view mirror, to see how the car behind me, behind him fared. And guess what happened? There was a second pothole in the road that when he looked behind to see how the driver behind was doing, he missed the second pothole and he hit it hard with a car. You know, when we behold Jesus, we are not called to look at other people. We are not called to look behind us and see how the other people are faring or what they are doing in their journey with Jesus, we're to look forward. Paul says, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, I press forward for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. We don't look beside us. We don't look behind us. We are to look at Jesus every moment, day by day. Now, those first three things when we talk about being are really more theological, right? Spend time at the feet of Jesus, pray, behold Jesus. The next three we'll go through very quickly. They're more practical. They're not so theological. Sleep. I think sleep, you might laugh at that. But sleep makes an incredible difference. Uh, In switching the mind from the do mentality, you can get so busy, overworked, burnt out, not sleeping, that you don't even take time to be. Sleep is important, taking a walk, spending time in nature, and finally, giving yourself permission to simply be. Greg is much better at this than I am. I'll be like, oh, we got to do this. And he said, why don't you just come sit a minute, Jilly? Okay. So we have a bench outside in our front yard, and it's underneath the redbud tree, and we'll sit. And I'll sit down 30 seconds. I'm ready. Uh, let me go. Let me do something. And he says, sit. Okay, so we sit, and I discover we have three deer, three baby fawns that come through our yard. And I discover this summer we have some baby raccoons that come through our yard. And I discover this summer that we have some baby turkeys that have come through our yard. When you sit and spend time simply being, it refreshes you. It rejuvenates you. So that's the first half of the seminar It's simply be, be faithful. We are called to be not necessarily to do. Now let's look at the second half. I told you it's going to center on the life of Joseph. These are those three keys that I see in Joseph's life for how we are to be faithful. Remember key number one, your past does not define your present faithfulness is not determined by your past key number two your present depends on his presence faithfulness is dependent on whose you are who our identity is in christ key number three your future depends on your present faithfulness is determined by the choices that you and i make today so let's look at key number one and turn with me to the book of genesis we're going to look at joseph the book of Genesis. Key number one, your past does not define your present. Now, if you look at Joseph, to me, Joseph is a hero of the word of God. He's a hero of the Old Testament. And yet, if you look at Joseph's past, would you say Joseph's past was good or bad? How many think his past was good? So, okay, a few think it was good. How many think his past wasn't so good? A few. How many are ambivalent? uncertain okay and then we have some who chose not to vote okay so if we look at Joseph's past he was clearly the favored son was he not so we might say this was a good thing but yet it led I would say to a lot of pain in his life if you look at let's start first with a rivalry between his dad Jacob's wives because remember there was one woman he loved who was that Rachel. He wanted to marry Rachel and his father-in-law tricked him and he married Leah instead. And he said, when he woke up the next morning, I didn't ask for her. I didn't want her. So give me the woman I wanted. Well, the father-in-law said, sure, but now you get two. And then when they left off bearing children, they took handmaids, right? So now he has four wives. I would say anytime you grow up in a home with that many women, I'm just saying, that is dysfunctional, is it not? It's dysfunctional. Um, When I was teaching, one of my students said, Miss Jill, I have three moms and three dads. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I have my biological mom who divorced from my biological father. Divorce is common today. So the biological mom remarried, so she has the mom and the stepdad. The biological dad remarried, so you have the dad and the stepmom. Then neither one of those homes were good, and she was taken out and placed in foster care. And she had a foster mom and dad. And she said, I don't even know who I am, and I don't even know who my parents are. There's pain in that, dysfunction. A Joseph's home had some dysfunction with all those wives next we look at the favoritism right between Jacob the dad and Joseph he loved Joseph more than all the other children we see that in Genesis 37 4 when his brothers as Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him now would you say that's a healthy growing up environment You grow up in an environment where you're hated by your brothers? That's not so healthy. Then we have uh, Joseph's sister, Dinah. Do you remember what happened to her? She was raped. And the brothers, Joseph's brothers, got so angry, they went out to Shechem and they killed every single man who lived in that village. So there is anger, there's hatred, there is, if you grew up in a home with that type of violence, that would impact you, would it not? Then we have the story just gets more and more complicated. We have Reuben, who was the oldest son. I don't know if you remember that in Genesis 35, he went into his father's concubine and slept with her. Do you remember that? So we think, oh, this is an act of lust, but really it was an act of dominance because whoever would go into the person's wives or concubines was considered the rightful owner. So this was an act of defiance or dominance over his father. We see this actually later. Remember when Absalom tried to usurp the throne from David and David was forced to flee. And what does the Bible tell us? That Absalom went up on the roof and lay with his father's concubines. It was a way for all of Israel to know that Absalom was the rightful king. It really had nothing to do with sexuality. It was all about dominance and control and asserting that control. So we see that take place in Joseph's life. We see Joseph's brother Judah, remember that story, in Genesis 38, going down the way, and he sees who he thinks is a prostitute, but it turns out to be his daughter-in-law, remember that story? And then he gets her pregnant. Okay, that's Joseph's brother. Then we see that Joseph is sold as a slave by his own brothers who hated him. So when I look at the life of Joseph, I don't see so much idealism. I see a life where there was envy and jealousy, a life where there was hatred and bitterness against him, a life where there was desire for revenge and desire for power. I see lust and sexual sin. I see slavery. Now, does that sound like a good childhood to you? Not really. So what does that tell you? If you look at the life of Joseph later, and we will discuss his life, if you look at his life and see the choices he made, where there was lust, he made choices for purity. Where there was hatred, Joseph decided to forgive. Remember at the end, he forgave his brothers. You see, the choices that Joseph made for God, to be faithful to the God of his fathers, were incredible, especially considering where he came from. You know what that tells me? Your past does not define your present. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how far you have stepped into sin. It doesn't matter if you've been victimized. It does not matter. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. What I'm saying is for your present, it's covered. It's forgiven. It's cleansed. And your past does not have to define you when you make choices for god and choose to walk in faithfulness your past where you have come from does not define you let's look at key number two your present depends on his presence in other words faithfulness is dependent on whose we are faithfulness is dependent on our identity so who was joseph was he daddy's favorite son Was he the envied brother? Was he the hated and despised slave? He was probably all of those. But yet, was that really who Joseph was? No. No. Joseph was the son of God. Joseph was faithful as a slave in Potiphar's house, as a prisoner unjustly accused and sentenced for something he did not do, as prime minister of Egypt and later as benefactor to the very brothers who hated him and the very brothers who tried to destroy him. He reached out and helped them. How could he do that? Because I believe that Joseph, somewhere along the way, after he grew up from being daddy's little pet and he entered a difficult life, he discovered whose he was. He discovered who he belonged to, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Joseph made a choice. Who am I and whose am I? That choice makes all the difference in the world. Who are we in Christ? 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called, what? Sons and daughters of God. Do you feel like your past is something that you're not proud of or something that's not pretty or something you wish you could put aside in Christ? You and I are sons and daughters of God. In Christ, you and I are adopted. Romans 8, verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by which we can cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. In Christ, you and I are new creatures. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creature. Old things, they've passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And in Christ, we are forgiven. Now, you might think I'm going to 1 John 1, 9, because I love that scripture. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, but we're not going there. We're going to Old Testament, because many times we think the God of the New Testament is a God of love. He's a God of grace. He's a God of forgiveness. But yet the God in the Old Testament, I'm not sure I could love him. And yet... The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. I see grace in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I see love in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We see forgiveness in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The scripture we're going for forgiveness is Isaiah. Isaiah 43, verses 25. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, even I, God is speaking, am he who blots out your transgressions for mine own sake. I will not remember your sins. Turn with me to Ephesians 1. You know, any time I begin to forget who I am in Christ, and you'd think you would remember that, would you not? You would think that I've walked with Jesus for years, and I know him, and I accepted him, and yet there are still times when the enemy comes against me, and he says, who do you think you are? What's wrong with you? do you really think you're forgiven? Do you really think you can be my, God's child? And I go, when those times come, I go to Ephesians 1. I don't know if you can see all the writing. You probably can't see that. The writing in my Bible. These are all the things we are in Christ. And when I need to be reminded, I pull out Ephesians 1 and I read it again. Let's read verse 3. In Christ, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Who are we? In Christ, you and I are blessed, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In Christ, we are chosen that we should be holy and without blame. In Christ, we are holy. In Christ, we are without blame having predestined us to adoption. In Christ, we are predestined. In Christ, we are adopted. Uh, uh, as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the blood. In Christ, we are accepted. In him, we have redemption through his blood. In Christ, we are redeemed the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we are forgiven. According to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom. In Christ, we have wisdom and prudence. In Christ, we have understanding. Jump down, verse 11. In him also, we have obtained an inheritance. In Christ, you and I, we have an eternal inheritance. Jump down to verse 13. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed in Christ we are believers, you were sealed. In Christ we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So anytime Satan comes against you, anytime you wonder, who am I and what am I doing and whose am I? You go back to that scripture and you discover who you are in Christ. So our past does not define our present where we came from. Faithfulness is not dependent on where we came from. Our present depends on his presence. Faithfulness depends on us understanding, accepting, and receiving our identity in Christ. Finally, key number three, your future, it depends on your present. Faithfulness is dependent on the choices you and I make today you know, I like lists, so you're getting nine points here in closing. Nine takeaways from the life of Joseph. This is based on Joseph's choices that we see from Genesis chapter 39. So jump over to Genesis chapter 39, and we'll take a look at this. Nine takeaways from the life of Joseph, and this is all looking at how our future depends on our present. Faithfulness is dependent on the choices that we make today. So these are nine takeaways, nine choices that I see that Joseph made. This is all specifically in the chapter, Genesis chapter 39. Let's read verses one and two. Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard an Egyptian, brought him, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. What's the next words? the Lord was with Joseph and he was a successful man. He was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Takeaway number one, make choices for God, even when it's difficult. You know, Joseph could have just sat there. He could have said, why Potiphar? Why slavery? God, why me? Why did you allow me to be sold as a slave? why am I here? Why am I struggling? Why am I in this place? And he could have had a pity party. He could have sat there and said, what is wrong? Why did this happen? And yet he made a choice for God, even when it is difficult. Are you walking in a difficult place today? Are you experiencing a difficult place in your marriage or in your home or with your children or in your ministry or your place of business? Make a choice for God, even when it's difficult. Takeaway number two, uh, Genesis 39, the next verses, 34, 3 and 4, verses 3 and 4. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph, he found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house and all that he had put under his authority. Takeaway number two, make choices for God and God will honor you. It's amazing to me as we look at the life of Joseph and you see he was in a difficult place. He was in a hard place that he could have indulged in this pity party and yet he made a choice for God when it was difficult and what happened with that choice? God blessed his life. God blessed what was happening there um, in the house of Potiphar. Make choices for God. Proverbs 22 verse 29. Do you see a man diligent in his business? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before mean men. Make choices for God, and God will honor you. Takeaway number three. We're in Genesis 39, verse 5. So it was from the time he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house, why? For Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was in all that he had in the house and in the field. Takeaway number three, make choices for God and others will be impacted. You know what's amazing to me is that, was Potiphar a Christian? Did Potiphar serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Did Potiphar worship other gods? Probably. Was Potiphar engaged in things he shouldn't have? Probably. And yet what happened? God blessed the household of Potiphar. Why? Because Joseph was faithful. Because Joseph served God. You know, if you read 1 Corinthians 7, it's sometimes a challenging passage. It's all about marriage and divorce and if you read it you could get a little bogged down in the details it's about a believing spouse being married to an unbelieving spouse but there's a certain verse that always catches my attention in first corinthians chapter 7 and it's verse 14 it says the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband How do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, Paul is not saying here that you can say, I want you to be saved and this person is automatically saved. We know it doesn't work that way. We know salvation is by grace through faith. We know we have to ask for forgiveness. We have to claim. We have to receive Jesus. But yet what I believe Paul is saying here is the same principle we see acted out in the life of Joseph. How God blessed Potiphar's household. Why? Why? simply because Joseph was faithful to God. So that means in your marriage, if you're married to someone who's an unbeliever, if you are at work and you work every day with someone who does not know Jesus, if you are in a home and your children don't walk with God or your grandchildren don't walk with God, God can bless those people because of your walk with God. God can reach out and pour into other people's lives because you have made a choice to be faithful because you have made a choice to honor God with your life. Let's look at takeaway number four. We're in Genesis 39, verse six. Thus he left, this is Potiphar, everything he had in Joseph's hand. He did not know what he had except for the bread that he ate. Make choices for God and other people. They will trust you. You ever notice that? If there's a person that you know whose word is always faithful, You know that when they say, I'm gonna do this, that they actually do that. When you say, uh, you you don't have to sign a contract, you can do a handshake, and you know that their word is as good as their bond. When that happens, other people begin to trust you. Is that not true? I know that there's people in my life that I trust, why? Because of their walk with God. Now we reach the turning point in the story before we get to the next takeaway. And this is an interesting passage. We're in Genesis 39, verse 6, the second half. It says, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Did you ever wonder why the Bible said that? It's interesting to me because how many people do we know what they look like in the Bible? Do we know what Jesus' mother Mary looked like? No. Do we know what Joshua looked like? No. Do we know what Dorcas looked like? We know what she did, do we not? We know that she sewed clothes and helped the poor, that she had a heart for others. Do we know what James and John and Peter look like? You know, the Bible seldom mentions outward appearance. Why is that? Because God doesn't see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord, the Lord looks on the heart. So why did they even mention what Joseph looks like? It's interesting to me. You yeah, there are two Hebrew words used here is form, And appearance, and if you dig into what the Hebrew actually means, the word form means outline, form, or figure, so it's literally his body, what he looked like. The word appearance means countenance, so it's his face. So, in other words, Joseph had a good looking face and a nice looking figure. The same two words are used to describe his mama, Rachel. You can look back and see the same Hebrew words. This is in Genesis 29, 17, if you want to look it up later. It says, Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. The same two Hebrew words, meaning she had a pretty face and she had a good looking body. So Joseph must have gotten his looks from his mom. But why is that even important in the story? Why does it even mention it? Why does it matter? Because of what happens next. And this incredible temptation that comes against Joseph in the form of Potiphar's wife. This is where we see Joseph's faithfulness really put to the test. We're in takeaway number five. This is Genesis 39, seven and eight. It came to pass after these things that his master's wife, this is Potiphar's wife, cast longing eyes on Joseph and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house and he has committed all that he has to my hand. Takeaway number five. Make choices based on principle, regardless of how you feel. That one's not so easy sometimes, is it? Make choices based on principle, regardless of how you feel. Did Joseph desire Potiphar's wife? The Bible doesn't tell us that. We can't really step into that. If you do look at what Egyptian women wore at that time, and you look at the fact that she really came on to him, I'd say there's a good likely chance that he probably desired her, but we can't jump in and speculate on that. Regardless, Joseph, of his personal feelings, Joseph made a decision based on principle, based on what pleased God, not what he felt, not what he desired, not what other people wanted him to do. That's faithfulness. Let's look at key number six. We're in Genesis 39, 9. Joseph still speaking to Potiphar's wife. He says, there is no one greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Takeaway number six, make choices based on how it affects God, not you or other people. Have you ever made choices? I know I have said, well, it doesn't hurt anybody else. Have you ever said that? I'm not hurting anybody. It's not affecting anybody else. This is only dealing with me. So it really doesn't matter. Does it really? We are called to make choices on how it affects God, not on how it affects ourselves or other people. Think about Adam and Eve. Remember in the garden, what if they had said, this fruit is just hurting me, right? If I eat this and maybe I'm going to die, maybe I'm going to not it won't impact anyone else, is that true? Their decision impacted the entire world. What does it do for God? Psalm 51, this is David's great prayer of repentance. I love this Psalm. You would think that he would say, I'm so sorry I sinned against Bathsheba, or I sinned against her husband, but what does he say? Psalm 51 verse four, against you, he's talking to God, Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now, he clearly could have said, my sin was against Bathsheba. And it was, of course. My sin was against Bathsheba's husband. And it was, of course. But more importantly, was that sin against God? You and I are called to make choices on how it affects God not necessarily how it impacts us or other people. Takeaway number seven, we're in Genesis 39, verse 10. So it was as she, this is still Potiphar's wife, spoke to Joseph day by day. He did not heed her to lie with her or be with her. Takeaway number seven, make choices for God, regardless of how many times you have to make the choice. In other words, once you make a decision, you stick with that decision. I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life when I make a choice. This is the right way. God, this is what you want me to do. And what happens? The next choice might be over here. And God says, wait a minute. I want you over here. I want that choice to be for right again. So consistently, it's talking about consistency. Consistently make choices for God. Jesus speaking, Luke 9, 62. Jesus said to them, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. In other words, we make a choice. I wanna follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. I'm making a choice for faithfulness. I'm making a choice for God, not based on who I am. It's based because I recognize whose I am. And I wanna follow him with my whole heart. Takeaway number eight, Genesis 39 verses 11 and 12. It happened at this time, when Joseph went into the house to do his work, none of the men in the house were inside, that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him outside. Takeaway number eight, make choices for right, regardless of the temptation. Joseph didn't stop to talk. Did you notice that? Before he had kind of reasoned with her, right? Saying, well, how can I do this and sin against God? Before he had gone that direction, but in this case, he didn't reason. He just turned and ran. There's an interesting passage in um, Mark chapter 9, verses 43 to 47. And every time I read this, I think, wow, God's a little hard. But if you really understand it, you can see Mark 9, 43 to 47. If your hand causes you to sin, what's it say? Cut it, Cut it off. Ooh, really? Wow, it is better for you to enter life maimed than having two hands and go to hell. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to sin, what are we supposed to do? Cut it off. It is better to enter life lame, having two feet, than to be cast into hell. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin, what are we to do? Pluck it out. You've read this before for it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes and to be cast into hell. I used to read that and think, that's a little harsh. Does it seem it? You know, if you're working with poison, would you like to place a nice label on it and keep it in your cupboard? What would you want to do? You want to get rid of it. Jesus is clearly not promoting self-mutilation. That's not the point of this passage. What he's saying is that sin, it needs to be dealt with. Sin if left to linger in my heart and in yours, what's going to happen to it? It's going to grow and it's going to destroy us. Do not explain away sin. Do not excuse sin. Do not rename sin. Do not minimize sin when drastic action is required take drastic action that's what joseph did we see him making choices choice after choice i'm here in egypt and it's miserable and i want to be home with daddy and yet i'm making a choice for god i'm going to honor god regardless of the circumstances i find myself in we see him making choices for god and god honoring him and honoring those choices we see him making choices for god and other people around him being impacted by those choices we see him making choices for god and other people trusting him because he's faithful to god we see him making choices based on principle Regardless of how he felt, he makes choices on how it impacts God, not necessarily how it impacts other people. He made a choice for God and he stuck with it. And he did it again, day by day by day. And here we see him making a choice for right regardless of the temptation. Finally, takeaway number nine comes all the way back to number one, actually. Number nine, we see him thrown in prison. We're in Genesis 39, 19 and 20. It was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, your servant did this, so this is the false accusation that she had trumped up against him. His anger was aroused. Then Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. So we're all the way back to number nine. Number nine is make choices for God regardless of the consequences. Remember before we said make choices for God and God honors you, and that is true. But there are times when you and i will make choices for god and it's going to look like it was the wrong choice because the consequences are pretty hard and the consequences are painful and yet in the midst of that god is not done because the bible doesn't end there and we see the very next verse verse 21 says the lord was with joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison and we're all the way back to number two make choices for God and he honors you again. You see, he made a choice for God and there were incredible consequences. He was thrown in prison, falsely accused, and yet he continued to make a choice for God. And what happened? God honored that choice. How are we to be faithful? Your past today does not have to define your present. Faithfulness is not determined by your present. Your present depends on his presence. Faithfulness is dependent on who you and I belong to. Your future depends on your present. Faithfulness is determined by the choices that you and I make today. You know, we talked about the life of Joseph. There's another incredible story of faithfulness in the word of God we won't discuss, but I want to read a couple verses, and this is Ruth. If there ever was a woman who was faithful and who made a choice for God, she left behind her heathen land. She left behind her heathen gods. She left behind everything that she knew, and she made a choice for God. Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or turn back from following after you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people, they're going to be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me and you. You see, you and I have the choice today to make a choice. God, I will follow you anywhere. God, I will choose you always. God, I will follow you unto death. Yes, God. I'm making that choice of faithfulness for you. You know, the story is told of a man by the name of Garo. He and his wife and two children all accepted Jesus. And the village chief became upset with all these conversions to Christianity, and he called the man out, Garo, and he said, you renounce your faith in Jesus or you're going to be executed. And Garo said, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And they killed his two children. And then the village chief looked at him again and said, You renounce your faith in Jesus, or we're going to kill your wife. And he said, Though no one joins me, still I will follow. Though no one joins me, still I will follow. Though no one joins me, I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. And they killed his wife. And then they looked at him and they said, You renounce your faith in Jesus, or we're going to kill you. And he said, The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. The man was killed for his faith. And later, the chief and that village became Christians because one man was faithful to follow Jesus. Do you want to make a renewed commitment today? I would ask you, do you want to follow Jesus? But I'm sure you all have made that decision. But it's not a one-and-done decision. There are times when we need to make that decision every day. Yes, God, I will follow you. Yes, God, no matter what it takes, I will follow you. Yes, God, no matter where it leads, I will follow you. No turning back, no turning back. I want to invite you right now in the quietness of your heart to make that rededication of your life to be faithful to God while Tim ministers. I have a recommitment of your life to the service of the Lord Jesus? Do you want to say, yes, God, I will follow you? Yes, God, no matter what it takes, no matter where it leads me, no matter what the future holds, I'm yours. I want to be your child. Holy Father, we come before you just now, grateful that our past doesn't define us. No matter where we came from, no matter what we've done, you forgive, you cleanse, you restore. God, we're grateful that in our present we can know who we belong to. We know who we are in you. And God, we look forward to the future knowing that those choices we make today make an incredible difference. We have decided just here in Orlando, Florida that we We will follow you, regardless of the consequences, regardless of the temptations, regardless of what comes our way. We will follow you. No turning back. No turning back. We're grateful that you are our Father. Thank you for hearing and answering the prayer of faith in Jesus' name.